0: Welcome to season four, episode 1A of the Surf and Sales podcast. And we call it 1A because I, after 399 episodes, lost a recording. So um, that, if we can ever find it, I'll post it. But uh, we are super glad anyway, it's kind of like the stars aligning it. We have uh, Michael Mortacci, did I say that right? Or Mortocci, how do I...
1: your last uh close martocci just it's italian so
0: all right so who is the ceo and founder of swag up so welcome to the surf and sales podcast michael also for people who didn't know we are officially uh part of the hubspot network what is it scott
2: hubspot podcast network
0: yeah so um that's pretty cool they uh we were like wow i guess but people want to hear what we have to say that
2: okay. means we've made it richard is what
0: it means <laughs> yeah that's what it means we've made it yeah. yeah
2: yeah that's it we're like uh we make as much as joe rogan now
0: is what it exactly. means <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, He Michael, makes.
0: welcome to the show my man
1: no, I'm excited to be here. It's been fun, just the first you know ten minutes leading up to it. So, and and you said one A, so I thought maybe I had to come back and finish you know part two or something. At, yeah, Richard's not good with weeks, numbers, so.
2: Michael. It really what he means is one B because one A is like lost. So you're like the yeah. replacement
1: episode one, which is one B. But yeah, we digress. So I'm the, I'm the last minute kind of fill in, so it's fine.
2: Yeah, well, tell everybody a little bit about Swag up so they have some context for. Um, what you're up to and, and specifically what type of sale it is. What does that sales motion look like?
1: Yep. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, for those that don't know, swag up is basically a more modern way for companies to buy and distribute their branded merchandise. So, you know, their swag items. So we work with a lot of, you know, high growth tech companies with new hire onboarding, especially if they're, you know, have remote teams and they want to get something on day one to them to kind of welcome them to the team, also, we work with a lot of software companies for their communities as well. So obviously, Swag's a huge way to build connection across, you know, a community of, you know, developers or advocates or whatever it might be. So we built a tech platform to basically help these companies create the items, you know, build out these different kits if they want to do that, and then manage their inventory. And we have some integrations with some of their third-party systems if they want to send, you know, set up some automation rules and stuff like that. Um, And then, you know, we try to, you know, expand through these accounts over time. So in, in the very beginning, you know, it was a very much, like an agency style business, you know, it was very much just, Hey, I'm emailing you. And do you want to, you know, do you want to buy swag? And it's like a swag brokerage. And over time it became a little bit more of like a, you know, an e-commerce SaaS hybrid business. So people can go on our site, they can get started on their own. We don't charge software fees. You can go in and make an account whenever you want and, and get going and invite other users and stuff. And we really just want to drive as much kind of transaction volume through the platform as possible. So we're trying to give people as much you know reason to not drop off and, and not look elsewhere and not put too much friction up in the beginning. So it's very much kind of like a land and expand model. Like let we get into the door with a lot of great companies, but it's usually some you know random team at that company or some EA at that company, something like that. And then, you know, it's our job to take that, you know, make that first order happen as quickly as possible, lock them into a degree, and then get those introductions to to other teams throughout the, you know, throughout the next, you know, six, 12 months and expand and expand. And what's crazy is, you know, this branded merchandise world is is kind of very under the radar but companies spend so much money on it you know it's you know swag alone is like a 50 billion dollar you know market and then there's all these other kind of tangentially related markets and it's not uncommon for like a series BC startup to spend a million two million five million dollars on this stuff you know in the period of of one year so you know we're still very small in the nature of you know we're like a 50 plus million dollar company but it's a it's a very very big market so there's still a lot of a lot of runway for us.
0: So tell us, Michael, how do we create a million-dollar revenue stream selling our own swag? Right? like that's <laughs> that's that's what Scott's looking at. Is 100
2: percent. There, there are people who have memed me with the exasperated facial expressions that I that I put out there and put it on a sweatshirt so far, and they put it in their own Shopify store. So how do we? And they're
1: making money off of your likeness. That's yes. You know. So
2: how do Richard and I reclaim this? If you were going to say, how do do you build this million dollar business? What kind of advice would you have?
1: I think you can't start with the swag. You got to start with the community. You know, like how do you, are you building a really great, you know, network of people that really care about the show and they care about you and they care about the other listeners and they all have this shared kind of interest and knowledge and Um, You know, how are you bringing those people together, you know, virtually in person, something like that. And the more that these people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, then the swag becomes this huge, you know, growth lever. And it's just like a, a physical embodiment of, you know, that connection and that care that people have for their brand. So I think first, you know, build a great community and then use the swag as like an accelerant to you know, let that go even bigger and let these people be your advocates and go wear it out there and go sell it for you because they, you know, they have this, this deeper connection. But if you just throw out some, some merch and people don't really care, it's probably not going to do that well, but, you know, and then, like you said, like, try to, Try to always hit on certain catchphrases or, or quotes, like make it make it your thing that everybody resonates with, with you guys for it. And, and then it becomes a lot easier. Like, you know, the All In podcast, like they say these certain things all the time that just constantly come up. So then it becomes so much easier to sell merchandise around those kind of themes because people know them for that. You know, they have that positioning.
2: I love that quote about uh, don't start with the swag, start with the community.
1: Yeah, that is like,
0: that is who you are, Scott but <laughs> like you you have built the communities on uh, multiple. yeah
2: we've, I've, so. I've spent time you know building a few and actually partnered with michael and swag up um with thursday, thursday night, night sales, sales by the way and we used swag up to deliver stuff to the community so people would come to our events on thursday night and you know we'd give away like uh blankets socks shirts hats pens stickers all of this stuff that's you know Thursday night sales, branded or Amy focused or Scott focused and whatnot. Um, so it was a, that was a great use case, you know, for us. We had this huge community, and we wanted to, you know, do some fun stuff and give things back and and swag up. Uh, you know, was a great partner for us with that.
1: So Michael, you yeah, can- I think it, it's like a, Go I was gonna say, it's like a microcosm of like just strategy in general. I think a lot of like first time entrepreneurs, they start with like the inconsequential thing, you know, um, versus like getting distribution or like building an actual, like getting traction. And it's like, no, you got to start with the substance and then you can like layer in these other things sometimes.
2: One interesting thing that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about, you want to get these people onboarded as fast as possible. But this is something that I encounter all the time in my consulting business. And I'm, I'm preaching that same thing. Like somebody just purchased, okay, we got to get them onboarded ASAP and we got to get them utilizing and using the product ASAP. Without that, retention goes down and all that stuff. So can you talk about from your experience, just like how important that stuff is and and what are some good goals for people to put in place? How soon should somebody try to get onboarded and what are the kind of Implementation utilization metrics that you're looking for at certain gates. And if you get past those, you're like, okay, this client's pretty good.
1: Yeah. Well, so I, I started doing all the sales for the company for the first two years. I you know, was up till three in the morning every night, you know, closing every deal, interacting with every customer. So, you know, I've seen kind of the evolution of the business and I've seen what kills and and makes deals happen. And obviously, you know, the old adage of time kills deals is like the most prevalent thing you know every day that the deal doesn't happen it's less likely to happen and you could probably graph a nice curve that is just like very you know um smooth that that shows that and also the faster you get them in the door you know it's all about getting the initial trust you know it, when when they haven't worked with you yet there's this real ambiguity of like they're not really committed to you at all and once you get to place the first order. I'm a big advocate of like, even if that first deal is small, you know, it's a thousand dollars, it's a hundred dollars, it's $5,000, whatever it is, just get them to make that first deal. Cause they get over that psychological kind of step of like, okay, we have a relationship with these people. We trust them. We have this partnership. Then you can go out and you've earned the right to basically have deeper conversations and get, get them to be doing more stuff with you. But I'm always like, I don't care how big the first deal is. I don't care. Don't, don't opt, you know, cloud the water with like talking about the bigger partnership just yet. Like just get them through the door, get the trust. Then you've earned the trust to then have those deeper conversations. That's just my general kind of sales philosophy. And then, I don't know, in terms, you know, we have like a 20, about a 21, 22 day time to close. It's a little different for us because we're not selling like a software products per se. It's kind of e-commerce with software. Um, But we, you know, we try to get them within three weeks from like first lead on the site getting them to, you know, close that first deal with us. And then, you know, our average customers do about three to four transactions after the first initial transaction. So there's a, you know, it's not like reoccurring software. It's like you have to kind of continue to get more revenue off of them or out of them on an ongoing basis. Um, but you know, the customers that close the deal within three, four five days are the ones that go on to become, you know, really successful customers. And, and like I said, like every, every deal that's taking an extra week, two weeks, it's the likelihood that it actually happens becomes much, much lower.
2: Yeah. And on, in the expansion sale, I would imagine one of the keys is, is to reach out to those people at the right time, the right time to kind of hit them up after they've, had some success or experience and then engage in that kind of dialogue. But I would imagine people screw that up a lot. So what are some of the things that somebody should be looking for if they're in if they're doing expansion sales to to kind of know that the timing might be right?
1: Well I think the key is to ask for feedback first, not expansion. You know, go go to them and don't say okay I think that they're probably ready to expand or to introduce us to more people like I'm going to ask for that you know, what I've always seen work is just reach out in a very helpful manner to say, hey, I want to learn about how the experience went. What were the things that you really liked? Where you think the platform's lacking this and that? And those conversations always lead to the bigger conversation of, you know, what else can we be doing with you? What other problems do we have that you guys aren't solving for us yet? Versus if I were to just reach out to them and be like, hey, you know, we want to work with you on XY use case that you're not working with us yet. Like, can we do that? Like that, that never gets the the right, you know, response. So I think it's reach out in a, in a way that's, you know, puts their guard down, ask for feedback and then let them kind of guide you if it's the right time. or, you know, cause I want to, I want to solve their problem first. If they have some sort of unresolved problem or they're not getting all the value just yet, like let's fix that for them first and then earn the right to then have the next, you know, conversation about where we go from here. And then once you do find out that, Hey, there is more opportunity, at least for us, we can work with so many different teams at a company. So it's like, first off, have we explored everything we can do with this team? And then if so, how can we also get introductions to other teams throughout the company? Especially if you think of like an Amazon that, you know, we work with Amazon and we work with like 40 teams there, but there's like hundreds of different teams there. So you can just go in and kind of farm that account for the next, you know, five years. So we started launching like a referral program to get people to refer us into you know different business segments and, and incentivize them that way. But, you know, the, I think the, the big mistake is, asking something from somebody when they're you know they're not happy or they haven't felt that they've got the full value just out of it and it's hard to just see that purely from like intent signals and data in a platform you kind of just got to ask them for feedback and be helpful i think
0: yeah i think you just nailed it and um i call it it's kind of like the the interview approach hey i want to interview something you have a couple of minutes I think it's a little bit more mm-hmm. on the sales prospecting side, but it's the same <clears throat> philosophy. I like that. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. You are a serial entrepreneur. You have co founded quite a few things. Have you always. I'm successful,
1: been... some not successful.
0: Well, I, as I say, look, every everything's a success because even if it didn't work, it got you closer to where you are, right? Or where you want
1: to go. So, yeah.
0: what are your. Have you always been that way? Like, were you always. That kid, you know, talking something at school when you weren't supposed to, not cigarettes or drugs or anything, you know, but maybe, I don't know. Um, Were you always that kid?
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I was like the quintessential like entrepreneurial kid. There's a picture on my Twitter. that's like pinned right to the top of it. And I'm like four years old outside my house, like on a phone. I've got my little stand outside. I'm selling yogurt. So I'm selling iced tea and all this kind of stuff. So that was always the, the kind of mentality. And it's, you know, I can't say I, I'm like, you know, I I did it myself. It was just like naturally ingrained in me from a, a DNA standpoint. My dad's entrepreneurial, but then my mom on the flip side, you know, worked in finance for 33 years. So I have like this analytical, you know, mind as well at the same time, but my dad's really the one that kind of showed me, you know, taking risks and just, I have some sort of blood in me that, that, that has that. And I used to, you know, I would have family dinners and everybody's over and stuff. And I would take the tissues from like the bathroom and then, you know, fold them and put them in like little to-go kind of packages and try to sell them to people at the dinner table. Like, Hey, I have these to-go, you know, <laughs> tissues. I had, oh I had different, ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you that know, re- repurpose good. it. Oh my I God. Used to, uh, I used to, I love to invent stuff too. Like, so my big idea as a kid was the butter stick. I loved, you know, I always found it so difficult to like spread butter on things, but I always, you know, glue sticks at school were like so easy. So I was like, why don't you put butter in like a glue stick container and just like kind of spread it on toast and bagels and stuff. And that was, I, you know, I tried to make little prototypes. I didn't follow through with it, but that was, that was like a big idea. I was really excited about. And then when I was like eight, one of the things I, you know, I liked working out, but maybe not eight, I might've been like 10, but I, I I played baseball and basketball, and all these things. So. I I saw that there was like a push for protein based things happening when I was like younger and, you know, and that really ended up happening. And I wanted to make protein based uh, ice cream. So like healthier ice cream with like skim milk and like protein based kind of like Halo top in a way, but this was like way, way before Halo top. So I had like these prototypes in my freezer and I'd write on them. Like I made this like April 20, you know, 2004 or something. So I I was always that kind of like inventive type of, you know, young kid that was just very curious.
0: Oh my God. I, so many good, ideas. the butter stick, dude, you like you gotta, you gotta go do that. And just, just to get on a shark tank and like come up with everything in a stick. Right? Like the what new scrub daddy, daddy.
1: Right. Right. So. Okay. Uh, but how much easier is that, you know, like right. spreading And it's, and sometimes I'll just take the actual butter stick itself and just do that. And it's just right. easier. A lot right. of people,
2: yeah. A lot of people do that. They grab the whole stick and just rub it all over. This, this is, I mean, I would use this cause I'm, I'm that <laughs> level of like lately.
1: Yes. I'm yes. like,
2: I tried to spread this with the knife, it's just not working. I fuck it. I don't want any butter.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's a real problem. And then you you start like you know, you break the bread or something with the knife because it's like hard and cold or something. I would do but... the same
2: thing with garlic. Yes. I don't want to spend time like you know, it's a
1: whole franchise. Butter. I mean, you, you talk about you you want to be able to afford a, a wave pool. I mean, let's start all the different variants of this stick, yeah. you know?
2: Butterstick.com.
1: Yep. Yeah, You could
0: even, Scott, you can even, you know, I mean, it kind of already exists though for surf wax, but you know, you yeah, can you could do it with surf wax you could for do sure. that stuff. You could do it. We, for, ju- we just had a baby and baseball bats.
1: So hundred percent. We just had a baby and a lot of people will use like diaper cream or something, but we have this stick that's like all natural and you just rub it and stuff. It's so much better. I like guess stick is a, a far superior like mechanism for spreading, you know, some sort of, you know, liquid or something, you know, some
0: (laughs) sort of, so, so I want to, now I want to fast forward. This is fascinating, by the way, like this is amazing. One, you were talking about being, you, you handled every sale, right? And I think founders make this mistake a lot. Like just out of curiosity, when you were first starting out, how many sales did you handle when you said that? Was it a hundred the first 10 or 15? Like where was that for
1: you? It was hundreds for sure. So we, I don't, we didn't hire, I hired an account manager to basically be my assistant. And that was about a year and a half into the business, at least, you know, so up to, and, and he was just there to kind of shadow my inbox, help me with some of the customer responses and this and that. So we, we had done. Okay, So the first few months in business was the first year was 2017. It was like six months. We did like 174k. So obviously I did like all 174k by myself. But then the next year we did 3.3 million. I did all that 3.3 million by myself. and the average order size at the time was probably 5,000, something like that. So if you think about that, that's was that 600 orders, you know, in that year two you know, deals basically. So, you know, about 50, 60 a month, something like that. So I was, you know, I was up, you know, till two, three in the morning, you know, clearing through my inbox and then waking up at, you know, nine, you know, 9am and starting again. And it was just like a lot, but, you know, I think, you know, as you said, like the mistake people make is they, especially if you're not like a sales led type of person, you try to hire people to sell your Mm -hmm. product and you've never actually sold it before. And then you never know like why things aren't working or you don't know how to scale it, you know?
0: So that, that's actually my question. Well, first of all, congratulations on going from 174 to $3 million in a year. Um, that's crazy insane, and I know you worked hard to do it. And that, that's the reason I'm asking this question uh, around or where I'm going with this, with this founder-led sales piece. In hindsight, do you think you could have, after eight or nine months, brought in someone Like, what was your reason to, because I could see a lot of founders going, holy cow, $174,000 in six months. I'm going to assume that's still a couple of hundred deals. So you did quite a few, right? Then I can see so many founders, fuck, even after 10 deals saying, okay, it's time to hire a salesperson do you think you could have gone faster and hired someone or is it like, no, this is what I needed to do that 3 million the second year. So I understood what that growth was going to take. Like what was your rationale for continuing to wait into the, you know, after that 3 million?
1: I think one of the things is that the reason you get so involved in sales in the early days is so that you can build a better product too over time. You know, so the more that I was able to understand the customer and the pain points, not only could we start to build of a sales engine and team but you know ultimately i wanted to build more of a platform and a technology that would help solve this problem so the more that i was in involved in those things the more i'd recognize okay what are the pain points where the deficiencies of like the manual processes here and like what would we need to build to solve this problem so you don't want to you know if you get too hands off from the customer too quickly and you lose that connection to them and what they care about i think that that becomes a challenge and then two is like those early customers are so pivotal to future growth. Like we didn't spend any marketing dollars for the first three years. And then even to this point, we only spend like two, three percent of our sales on on marketing. So a lot of the market you know the growth has always been through the customers and them telling other people and them having good experiences. And you know I don't I didn't want to pull my hand off of that too quickly because I, I knew that they were going to be the you know the engine that would bring in more customers and and return revenue through them. Um, and you know, maybe I didn't trust somebody else to do that right away or, you know, and, and then also you just, you know, when, when you're super busy, I don't know, sometimes you're just like busy doing it and not thinking about, you know, how to scale it with other people just yet. And and then you got to find great people. And then, you know, in the early days I was out of my mom's like house. And then we had this shitty warehouse in Linden, New Jersey, that was like no air conditioning. And, you know, even to be able to find people, that are at the caliber that you'd want to be able to like take that kind of risk, I think is challenging too, as a, as a 22 year old, you know, founder, 23 year old founder, like who's going to make that jump. And I think that there's probably some hesitancy of even thinking like, okay, would anybody even join me? That's like a good salesperson. So the first salesperson I went to college with, so I was able to kind of, you know, get convince him to leave his job and and join us. But, you know, if it was just some random person, I don't know if it would have been as simple Um, to get them to, to commit to it. But I'm sure we could have figured it out, but you know, there's just hesitancy probably.
0: So here's here's my next question. I know Scott's got some more. So you go from founder led sales to bringing in a salesperson, right? How hard was it to let go?
1: Well, first off I trained him to like really be just like me, you know, that was the main thing. Like he didn't go out and start selling for the first probably three months you know, he was really just there to kind of shadow me, you know, help me be more effective because I didn't really hire a salesperson at first. I hired him to make me more uh, scalable and and get leverage for myself. And then it just became natural where he would do the same things that I would have done in those scenarios. So then it was just, okay, you can now take some of these accounts because it's just becoming too much for me to manage. And I'm not, you know, I literally got to a point where I just couldn't keep, up on the imbo- on my inbox, like I just had so many messages from from customers, and you know, I, it used to be that every day I'd stay up till as long as it took to get to inbox zero, basically. And then it started to get to a point where I could just never do that anymore. It just built up, built up, built up. Um, so you know, I, it, to me, it was like if you don't make this change, you're just losing money. So I, I wasn't too like you know romantic about not letting somebody else do it, but I also knew that he would make good decisions because he kind of watched whatever decisions I would have made.
0: So how do you, sorry, I got one more to follow up on that. So you're, but again, it's it's for these people who are founders or people working with founder-led sales, right? Is that, okay, so you're already doing, you know, 9 a.m. to 2 a.m., closing all the deals. Now you're bringing someone else on board. And again, I see founders thinking like, okay, great, they're here, you go do it. How did you even find time to train that person the way you wanted, or was it really just you know, shut the fuck up, sit next to me and watch what I do and then do what I do.
1: Like pretty much, pretty, pretty much. It's like, Hey, just like absorb everything, ask questions throughout the way. You know, I, I gave him, you know, um, power to like go into my inbox and respond to things. So I let him kind of take control of some of the, the conversations and monitor, like, okay, did he answer this right? Is he doing the right decisions here? You know, so it took, it took kind of working with him to start to figure out, okay, if we needed more reps, how would we build a process around it? I didn't have like a specific process in place and said, Hey, you know, you've tr- followed this for three months and you'll become an AE basically. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, it re- it really was like, Hey, just like sit next to me right here on my left shoulder watch what I'm doing. And then at a certain point, I'll give you more and more, you know, leeway. And then he ended up becoming our head of, you know, business development and um, like ran the BDR team over time. Um, he just left recently. He was here for like four years, but you know, it, it worked out well. He was a, a high performer, but you know, I didn't, we, we didn't have like a real scalable process day one.
0: Congratulations on getting someone who's your first sales hire to stick four years. Like that does not happen very well, very easily. I never stepped
2: four years anywhere.
0: I know that. so It's debatable whether I'm going
2: to make it to year four on my own even.
0: Right. It's debatable whether you're going to, I'm surprised I lasted four years with you. <laughs> so, you know, this is our fourth year of the podcast, Scott. Right. have anyway. so.
2: we've, we've broke new ground here. Season four. I've made it to a four. I want to know a little bit about your philosophy, Michael, on uh, quota setting and sort of accelerators and floors minimums to get paid and things like that like how do you think about that stuff it's it's a, it's an interesting climate as it pertains to targets quota setting attainment compensation and all that kind of stuff so i'm curious what what you uh you know have to add about that and how you yeah. how you've operated
1: yeah i mean you could probably spend two hours just talking about different ways of going about this and methods and things that have worked and things that haven't, I mean, we've gone through a lot of different iterations over time. So we had these original salespeople who were like the first true AEs. So you had um, this one guy who was, who was with us originally, but he transitioned more into like, you know, BDR type, you know, and then BDR manager. So he wasn't really the, he didn't stay with the AE track. When we finally had like true AEs, we gave them 3% yeah, we gave them like 70 to 80K base and 3% of all sales uncapped. And that might not sound like a lot because in software you get paid you know, 10, 15, 20, whatever it is. But when you're talking about a purely inbound role, and these are large deals you know that can be 100,000, 300,000, 500,000 of, of swag that has like a 35 to 40% gross margin, like 3% ends up being pretty good. And, and you can handle a lot of deals at once as as one of these reps. So we, you know, some of our early reps and some of them are still here because it's a good setup for them. You know, they can make 300 grand, you know, selling, selling swag and, you know, because of that 3% upside. And, you know, we, we're kind of stuck in a way with those legacy you know, plans i'm sure you've been in situations like this where you, you you join an organization like oh yeah they've been here for a while kind of is what it is they have you know that structure and that's you know that's been challenging to kind of shake that but for all you know people that came after them we've done a, we've gotten a lot more kind of methodical about how we go about doing these like we didn't have floors before and now we do as of like 12 or 18 months ago because it was just like super unprofitable to have people that are getting paid out you know, decent amounts of money, let's say 20, 30 K a quarter for being at 80% of where we need them to be. And obviously you can just say, Hey, we need to fire them and move on. And it is what it is. But like, you also want to help people be successful And setting these floors and goals and reaches and accelerators helps them kind of stay focused on like, okay, this is where I need to be. And this is what high performers, you know, look like at this company. Um And I think that the biggest challenge with like quotas is sometimes people just kind of throw them out there. Like, I want this person to do, you know, 300k a quarter or 300k a month or something. And I try to look at it like, look at the inputs. Like first off, what does the business need? Okay, how many sales reps do we have? What does the business need to do from a revenue standpoint to be profitable or break even or whatever it is? And and kind of work backwards from a top down standpoint, but then also look at it from a bottoms up standpoint and look at like, okay, well, how many reps do we have? How many accounts do they have? How many leads are we bringing them? What are the conversion rates? What does like high performance look like? And can we actually hit? The goals that the company needs to be at, and then can we add a little bit on top as like a, a reach and a stretch to get these people to kind of push a little bit harder? But you know, there's a big you know, I hate looking at revenue because I think revenue is such a stupid. Like at the end of the day, it's all that matters, but it's also doesn't matter at all because it's like, how did they get to that revenue? How many accounts do they have? Like, what's their expansion rates with the accounts that they do have? What how how are they closing new deals? Are they getting a lot of new leads and this other person's not getting a lot of new leads? Do they have a bunch of really good active accounts and this other person doesn't have a lot of active good accounts? So I, I think some, you know, young sales leaders don't really look at the, the inputs enough at like how these people are getting to these numbers and they just look at the revenue number and it's very hard to coach on revenue. You know, you have to coach on, well, what did they actually do to get to that revenue number? And, you know, somebody could look like a high performer and they actually suck and somebody could look like they suck, but they're actually a a high performer. So I think just getting super, data driven on the inputs is really important. And then, and figuring out does that actually match with what the company needs from like a financial standpoint, from a top down level? And then if so, or if not, like how do we bridge that gap? And then where do incentives help make up maybe some of the, the stuff that data can not explain? Like, well, if we can get it, you know, 10% improvement, then, you know, that'll make up the difference. And I think that, you know, the accelerators can help there.
2: Yeah. The implementation of a floor is like a, People think it's dunking on salespeople and all that, that kind of thing it gets, it gets a little bit of a bad rap. I think,
1: I don't it's, know what you, I mean, it's a hairy it. conversation to try to have with talking, people too.
2: To Michael's point is like, you're paying people out, you know, 3%, whatever you might owe somebody a couple thousand dollars for a particular month or quarter who did, he said 80%, but I'm thinking like 40% to goal, like way off. is like a super high floor for me. But if somebody is getting paid thousands of dollars and they did 40% of their target. And then you think about scaling that where it's multiple people who I'm paying thousands of dollars to. It's like, I just paid a lot of money in commissions for people who really like did not do well at all. And I'm, I'm very quick as everybody probably knows to come to the defense of employees and, and not, employers as much but i gotta be honest with you on this one like i don't think you're very entitled to all these commissions if you hit 35 percent of goal i just don't I, I think a floor can make sense if it's set at the right kind of level like less than 50 percent you don't get anything i don't really know how somebody argues against that they, oh, they try sure. they try they try i don't know i don't know if they can convince me right
1: and there's nothing like writing that you know, commission check to the person you just laid off too. you know, where it's like, you know, and you don't, again, you want to defend, you know, the employees and make sure they're set up for success. But ultimately, there's going to be people that you have to let go because they're just not the right people. And then they get to collect, you know, 10 grand on the way out because they had, you know, pending commission that, you know, you don't feel that they really deserved. Um, You know, one thing too, is like, sometimes, sometimes you have a bad quarter as a rep too. like, you know, the deal, you know, you know, gets extended out, you know, whatever it is, it gets pushed into the next quarter and and you're way below it. What we've done in some situations like that is try to set up like a double or nothing, like let them, let them kind of come back next quarter or next month and win it back by, by overperforming. And, you know, but you got to, you know, make sure that these are people that, you know, you feel are strong and you're just you don't want to be super lenient and just let people miss all the time and it's, Oh, it's okay. You were, you missed it by 5%. You're so still going to get it. Like that stuff starts to become a slippery slope where people don't respect performance anymore. And, and the high performers don't like it. You know, like my, my general philosophy is that, you know, you want to give as much money as possible to your best employees as possible, and I think that when you build in too much cushiness for like the the bottom third of the company, they end up sucking a lot of the money and resources out of the company, and you can't reward the top performers as much as you. You're think just rewarding they mediocrity, should.
0: right? It's Kind of like, you know, if I look at if I look at every golf club and I see that I hit my six iron on average a certain distance. Well, that's not good enough. Cause then I'm just playing to the mediocrity of my own clubs and my own swing. Right. Like I need to know what my best is and then make that attempt rather than play to my averages to a certain extent. And then yeah. once I know my stuff, then maybe I'll do that. But I also think too, to, to Scott's point of people defending, getting paid under 50%, you know, the best defenses will Scott, you were out. On an ayahuasca trip, when you made these goals, so fuck you, pay me at thirty percent. So well,
2: they might have a point then if my goal setting was completely ridiculous and the goals were way too high. But if I assume that the goals were realistic and attainable, a lot of other people hit them, and this person wants to get their thousands of dollars of commission by doing thirty percent to goal. I don't know. I'm not really with you on that one. But yeah, I mean, if there's, uh, it's an interesting conversational starter.
1: I mean, if, if everybody's if there's a lot of people that are underperforming, then it's obviously you know probably some sort of systematic issue. Yeah, that's or, a goal you know, set problem. Issues. Yes, yeah. Yeah. but if yeah. but if you have a few stragglers that are like way off, that's a person problem, you know, and and or a management problem, and they haven't you know been properly coached. Potentially, who knows? But you know, it's it's an issue, and um, yeah, yeah I mean, we've gone through a lot of different variations of this over time. So, so we got to
0: got to get to a wrap up, but before we do, you know, Michael, we always flip it to you to, to say, you know, what question do you want to ask us? What do you got out there? And, and while we do that, um, Scott, you want to give a, a the closing of uh, HubSpot since I butchered that in the beginning?
2: <laughs> yeah. We just want to thank uh, our sponsor HubSpot. We're part of the HubSpot podcast network nowadays, Surf and Sales podcast, season four, episode one, Michael Martucci, founder and CEO of SwagUp. What question do you have for us? How can we be helpful to you
1: and i didn't prepare for this question but i got i have a question so you know we've we've been a largely inbound driven organic kind of viral machine so you get these reps that you know basically their first few years at swag have all been about like efficiency it's like how do you process demand really efficiently and now you switch kind of mentalities and you get into you know an environment like this where the economy is tougher deals are hard to come by you can hit natural plateaus with certain accounts until you like really expand them correctly. And, you know, do you get the existing reps to kind of change their mentality to be, you know, expanders and aggressive kind of, you know, outbounders in a way, Or do you have to start to segment out, you know, these efforts with different types of people with different personalities and, and get really kind of specialized? Because I think that the, you know, what works for viral growth kind of startups in the early days is fine to get you to 50 million or maybe even a little bit more, but at a certain point you need to like have a very deliberate sales motion after that. And then how do you make that transition? I'll,
0: I'll start um, with a couple of thoughts. So one, um, and this is this is a big. It depends. So I'm going to throw out a couple of different ideas. It doesn't mean you do. You can try all of them. One is you better run your numbers on outbound because it's fucking expensive. It is not inexpensive to do. Because to your point, you know, you were talking about your sales cycles. You know, the best ones are three days. The long ones are 21 days. Well, I can assure you, if your longest inbound deal is 21 days, and a certain percentage of them are that, my guess would be your bigger outbound deals from first touch, not even from first conversation are probably 60 to 90 days. Um, generally, I think particularly in this climate because of the economy, right? Like I've, you, you'd be the better person to tell me that, I feel like if I have a company that's doing swag at the number that, that you were talking about earlier, that's the easiest place for a CFO to cut something. Like a million bucks oh we can cut that nobody needs that or we can cut it to 30 percent, or whatever so i think that's a big challenge i think your messaging has to shift a lot to greater value um and i think going back to what you said of, well how are you handling this you know this piece around motivation and camaraderie and all those things um, in this economic client right so getting them to sort of share that piece i think is part of it but outbound's super expensive, um, and you just need to run the numbers. The other piece is, um, and run the numbers of: do I build it in house or do I outsource it? Because there are good outsource orgs out there. Um, that's one thing. The other piece is coming back to your thing of I. It's hard, in my opinion, to find people who've been living off inbound for so long to get them to just. You even use the word aggressively. Go outbound. If they aren't naturally inclined to that, it's going to be harder. and then you that can just become a different management problem. I don't you know, I think you have to know your expectations of people and what you want out of them. And I do think it's okay to segment it, but I think you have to experiment with all these things. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know Scott and I talked about this with some with some sports teams, some pro sports teams back in um, the beginning of COVID. You know, the sports teams, as we really couldn't go to an event, the teams were just, they were just hunkering down until this thing passed. You remember that, Scott? They were yeah. like, we're yeah. not, we're cutting everything. And they had now, granted, sports teams had money, right? I don't know if they actually lost money during COVID, which is an interesting thought because of all the TV rights and stuff. But they they really had to take that approach. And I'm not suggesting that's an approach you should take at all. I don't think, I don't think it's good for many companies, but... I feel like that's what I see and hear a lot of. Like, let's just hold on for dear life until you know, you know, somebody tells us it's good, or twelve people tell us that we're not in a recession, or whatever it is. So, like, well, I'll shut up and, and like respond or let Scott jump in.
2: And I, I I have worried for a long time that we've over segmented everything. I have never built a sales org with an SDR team ever. Everything that I ever did was full cycle sales rep. And I I would still-
1: Cook it, kill
2: it, eat it. Yeah. And I would still do that if I was starting one right now. It would be harder for me now, I believe, than it would have been five, 10, 15 years ago because the segmentation has created a lot of entitled, lazy, non-prospecting accounting executives. But I think that we are going to return to the glory days of full cycle because you've got all these people over-segmented into these SDR and upsell rules and all this kind of stuff. But none of those messages are getting through. If you're getting a 1% response rate on email, you know, if you're like an average sales or right now, Why do I have to have an SDR specialist to get a 1% fucking response rate?
1: That's ridiculous. Just chat GPT and outreach or something and do just as well.
2: Why can't I have it be automated away? Why can't I have my one salesperson prospect? Why can't this one salesperson now understand certain triggers that let them go back into the account and try to grow it and nurture it? I never really, I never really got away from all that. And and I think there's starting to be a lot of fracture and pains in this segmentation. So if you're asking me, like, what do I think is going to happen? I think it's going to come back around towards where it used to be, because I just don't think it makes sense for a lot of orgs to spend 60K salary on an SDR, 100K salary on an AE, for one of them to prospect and not do it well based on the percentages and math and somebody in an AE seat to sit around and wait for demos that marketing has a hard time generating and STRs have a hard time generating and then for everybody to complain. And even when it does work, now my customer acquisition costs are through the roof and I created a fuck ton of organizational complexity and a harder management issue. I don't get it. It's
1: it's it's very hard to load balance too, like because you need to have like people in all sides of the equation. Like, you know, whereas everybody does the same thing. You can go down with a few AEs, you can go up with a few AEs, but if you own if you you can't go down past one person in one of those functions because you, you need somebody to do that function because they're the only ones that can do it. So it's a lot easier to be flexible with with more full cycle AEs. We're somewhere in the middle, like we've always been more of the full cycle approach, but we have a few people that can help support the AE because ultimately I think the AE can drive, you want to make your best sellers more impactful, I think is a, you know, at a high level, even if that means that they do do everything, but at least give them maybe some support so that some of the more operational parts of the role are are taken care of so that they can spend more time on it. One other question, do you think that the, the sales stack and just a, you know, the sales process is like over-technologized. I feel like there's like a new SaaS platform every day that everyone thinks like they need to have it to be able to sell the, at the levels that are needed versus just like you know, do have we lost the art of just like selling, or do we yes. need all these? Tools?
2: <laughs> yes, simply yes. You're on mute, Richard. I knew we couldn't get through this episode one without Richard being on mute. Take yourself off mute, Richard.
0: I was just gonna say, Scott, tell them how big your sales stack is.
2: Oh, I use nothing. I I just posted about this today. I, yeah. I use Google Suite. What else do I have? I have to pay for a Zoom license, which I don't have to, I suppose. But I do a bunch of large events and it's just easier. And I pay for bill.com to do invoicing. I literally don't think I pay for anything else. I have a multi million dollar consulting business and I pay like a hundred and something dollars, (laughs) period, for like anything. No, people don't want to do the work anymore, Michael. It won't be long. Everybody wants to disagree with me. It won't be long before an AI comes out that delivers the actual fucking vocal sales pitch and the salesperson won't need to do anything anymore.
0: I actually just got a cold call today that was pretty, that was really good, like right before this about insurance. And like it really sounded like it, it was a human who recorded it, but it was like, yeah, It took me about, it took me about 30 seconds to go, enter, you know, hold on, hold on. I do want to hear about this. And then they started to repeat themselves and I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's the record. but yeah. it was that good. Um, so, yeah, too,
2: I think it's too much. I think yeah. it's too much. I don't, I don't fault people for building those businesses though. Right. I don't right. Think fault people for building the business that solves this little problem of sales and all that kind of stuff. I fault salespeople for being lazy yeah. and, and wanting things to do the work for them. And I think this is an advantage that sellers will have moving forward is the people who can utilize some stuff, but still do a lot of the, you know, nitty gritty work themselves, they're going to be much stronger and in a much better place because there's fewer of them. They're going to stand out a lot easier, I think.
0: Yeah. Michael to my thought of that is yes, um, there's an article that that our friends at Salesforce asked us to contribute to that talks about the average sales stacks like 10 things right now. And um, that consolidation is a big deal. I think consolidation is happening one because of the economy. Like I think it's accelerating that part. I also think the tools are now overlapping more and more and more and more. Right. And um, the, the, You know, the Chorus and the gong and, you know, the fact that Chorus is now owned by Zoom Info, right? A data provider is pretty fascinating to me, right? So that it's one less platform, theoretically, for someone to have to open, right? Um, And again, Salesforce is, it's interesting because Salesforce has been trying to do that for years. They keep adding these features that all these other companies come and then they will either try and buy that a company and then fuck it up or they just fuck it up in general. And now what I think is happening is now that all these activists are buying into Salesforce with billions of dollars of stock, some of those people, I think, want to start to spin this stuff back off. Like they, there's thought, look, they're going to spin Slack back off to its own company. They're going to spin Quip out. They're going to spin, you know, that's that's a theory. That is, I have no information on that, but that's what I think is happening. I also think yeah, it's going to change the DNA of the, eight, of the salesperson that they have to be a better at having conversations, which they've always needed. They're also going to have to have a greater ability for some level of technical expertise, with the exception of Scott Lees, who is, you know, the <laughs> uniform of all salespeople. So.
1: I mean, the key, you got to connect with people and uncover need, you know, like, and no, no platform is going to do that for you. Like you need to do that with people. I think, I think the technology is warranted on like a marketing automation front. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you need something to like really understand the customer, what they've done with you, where they found you, how to find them again, you know, you know, nudge them when they do certain things Mm -hmm. in the platform, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, on the sales side, like these productivity things, I think to your point are just like excuses to not do the work probably.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between top of the funnel and encouraging that engagement to occur. And then how do I actually have a decent conversation with somebody, which is really where I think that the trust happens, you know? Um, there are rare occasions of product-led growth, right? I'm sure you have enough customers that don't necessarily have to talk to someone, which yep. is okay, too, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and it's, I think it's highly encouraged. Um yep. At some point, well, those, J- the deals, though, those companies actually want to talk to a human, right? <laughs> they do want
1: to I mean J- Jason know. Lemkin's a huge proponent of go on a plane and go meet the customer. Like if you go meet the customer, the chances that they churn are like, you know, infinitely you know lower. Sadly, you know, exactly. I can't follow Jason them.
0: Limkin. He blocked me on LinkedIn, so I'm not allowed to uh, see his content because I disagree with him too much. So <laughs> but I love you, Jason, if you ever <laughs> on that
2: on that point, he's not wrong though. On that point, he's not wrong.
0: No, he's not. I'm not saying he's wrong. He just didn't like it when someone disagrees. So, um, but that's okay. I still love him. I wish I could see more of his content, but shame on me. Not really. Not really. Scott knows. Waiting
2: for that not really part. Michael, thanks so much for being a part of the show, man. Everybody should connect with Michael on uh, LinkedIn, check out Swag Up, and uh, maybe they can help you in your business. So, good luck, Michael.
1: Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was fun.
2: Awesome.